Let me pray for us. Lord, this evening we pray for your grace and your Holy Spirit to continue to bless and build us with your word. And in doing that, Lord, would you use both your word and each of our lives and our lives congregated together to magnify Jesus and to proclaim his gospel, which not only saves us from eternal wrath, but restores us to true humanity, making us new humanity in Christ. And with the lostness and confusion of the world outside, that we would be armed with grace and the gospel of truth to tell friends and family and co-workers about the redeeming grace of, of you, Lord Jesus. So equip us to those ends and more, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you would open your Bibles to Genesis 3, you can stage there. So just by way of a few housekeeping things, so tonight we have two more meetings after this evening, and then we are done with the, this fall course, and then Lord willing, in some way we'll pick it up as we move into the spring, uh, so stay tuned for those, those details. As I mentioned you know, early on a couple times, that this really is the prototype guinea pig time going through this, moving through different information. A lot of the questions that you have, comments that you make are valuable in shaping the, uh, the content of this class for when it's taught again uh, in different ways. So thanks for your feedback. So we ended last time together on page 46. So we're going to jump there in a few moments. The notes that you received tonight is a new page 50 and on. So the page 50 that you currently have and on, you can scrap and replace it with the notes that you have this evening. But before we jump into page 46, we're at the bottom of the page, beginning with number 7. We finished talking briefly about marriage. We ended our time last night, or rather two weeks ago, with the question, what is a man and what is a man for? And then we closed our time reading Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. I'm going to open our time by rereading Genesis 3 to set the stage and remind us of using, or rather having Scripture furnish and orient our time together. But we began last time asking for the world's perspective on what a man is and what a man is for. So before we jump into Genesis 3, reading that, I want to open our time with the counterpart question, what does the world say a woman is and what is a woman for? What, is, what are some different competing ideas the world gives for what a woman is and what she is for? Mandy, do you want to kick us off? <laughs> Bo, do you have... Wait, hold on. Sure, yeah, kick us off. What, for, a non-biblical person. Have you seen the docu documentary, What is a Woman? I have not watched it okay. yet. It was interesting. Um, um, I could say what they wouldn't say. I mean, they wouldn't say she's a woman's for bearing children, right? Like, a, a woman's purpose in life is to fulfill her bliss, just like they would say that about any... Um, Individual, but I'd say they say that almost more about women 
that women should try to find their own happiness and that should be their greatest goal. Um, and almost to some degree more than a man should because a man's, like whenever they're in relationship, it's a man's job to please the woman from a worldly perspective. That's right. And with the teaching of feminism, that true liberation from a woman would be liberation from the oppression of a man in every capacity, both in the home and the business. Um, but w just the first point you made, so I'll just piggyback, I'll capitalize on that. Still open, so please think, what are some different ways the world defines a woman and what she is for? But yes, there's the insane notion that both men and women can bear and nurse babies. Um, so uh, that, that devalues and degrades women and it deglorifies women when men or women take to themselves the idea that childbearing and, um, um, and uh, nursing a child is a man's domain as well. What are some other things? What is a woman for from the world's perspective? What is she or it? Anyone else? I would say like they try not to define it to a point and leave it open-ended and there's no there's no real like specific purpose. So even my question is a wrong question. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's good. That you notice that that's not good that that exists, but yeah. Anyone want to land the plane besides Mandy? Oh, Katie Harmeyer. Um, women should be strong and independent. They don't need to rely on anybody else, especially men. They should provide for themselves. Yeah, provide for themselves. Strong, independent. So what does strong mean? Usually, I guess it just means like emotionally strong or like not necessarily physically strong, but like I'm strong enough to take care of myself kind of thing. Yeah. Okay, that's an interesting introduction. So we're going to get into Genesis. Oh, there was a one more. Yeah. The creative. We're rec recording it, so you got to speak into the mic. The creative uniqueness of woman is not heralded, and it there's no distinction in how a woman is even identified by the world. That's right. And that's why they are they can be strong and compete in women's sports, they, then that gives them the pathway to be able to do that. But I think it's the attack upon the unique creative design of womanhood and their very physicality is even dismissed by mm -hmm. the world. That's right. Genesis chapter three. So we said similar things for what is a man and what is a man for last time, we've established in many ways some worldly perspectives. We, I just have to ask you to glance through Genesis 2. I'm going to read Genesis 3, and then we're going to pick up because we're going to move into what does Scripture say a man is and what is a man for, and what is a woman and what is a woman for, 
from the Bible's perspective. But we cannot begin that conversation without first understanding Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We've spent weeks in Genesis 1. We spent last time in Genesis 2, so jumping into Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? That's the you is singular there. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit and I ate. First blame shift. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Second blame shift. Verse 14 The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, or offspring. He, singular, shall bruise your head, serpent, and you, serpent, shall bruise his, the seed of the woman's, heel. I will surely multiply your pain. Oh, wait. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, ye shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called Isha, the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. 
Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That is God's word. So if you look on page 46 of your notes, let me get us there. Bottom of the page, number seven, just picking right up what we've been doing, having read Genesis 2, which we don't have time to do this evening, and now Genesis 3, we're simply making text observations of what the word says, exegeting the text, and this is going to help form and inform our understanding of what it means to be a man and what he's for, a woman and she's for, and the redemption and renewal that we have in Jesus Christ. Well, one thing looking back to Genesis 2, number 7 here, when God made Adam and he placed him in the garden, it says that he placed garden, the, Adam in the garden to work it and keep it. The Hebrew words are abad and shamar. And the word abad, which is work here, can also be translated as worship in the sense of service. And the word keep it for the garden, shamar, also means to guard or to obey. The reason it's important, those two words together, abad and shamar, or work it and keep it, when God put Adam in the garden and said you're going to work it and keep it, those, that duet, that combo of terms is used of the priests in the tabernacle and in the temple. So they worship and obey or keep God's word, and they worship and serve him. That's why it's believed that the Garden of Eden was the first garden temple palace in which God walked and dwelt. Adam was not only the first king of creation, but he was the priest because he had priestly duties there. This will become important to understand what it means to be us in Christ. But now we move into Genesis 3 and think about the fall, because the fall has affected and frustrated masculinity and femininity. The fall is an inversion of the created order. So Genesis 1, work it, keep it, the ground, be fruitful, multiply, fill and subdue the earth, exercise dominion, and all the things the creation commission. What we see in Genesis 3 is the created order of Genesis 2.16 is reversed. In Genesis 2, there's God. Then he makes Adam. He speaks to Adam. Adam names all the animals. But there was no helper suitable for Adam that was found. So God took his rib out and made Eve. And then presumably one of the animals or creatures, you have Satan. You kind of have a, an order there in Genesis 2. God, Adam, Eve, and maybe Satan. But we just read in Genesis 3, it's a reverse. It's an inversion of the created order. Satan shows up. He goes to Eve, deceives her, Adam who was with her listened to the serpent, watched his wife engage with the serpent, let his wife get deceived, then he who was with her, he took the fruit and he ate, and then God shows up. So it's the exact opposite character order, so to speak, in Genesis 3. There's an inversion of the creation order. Why is this important? When we get to the New Testament, 
And when we, Lord willing, this evening later on, start talking about the gifted grace roles that God assigns to men and women in marriage in the church, all the appeals in the New Testament are to God's created order before the fall. And in one case, the misordering after the fall. So we'll come back to that. So we have in 3.6, Adam was with her. Adam was standing there for the whole conversation. While Isha, because she's not yet named Eve, bears responsibility and is guilty, God holds Adam accountable for the fall. God calls out exclusively to Adam in 3.9, where are you, singular? It's not plural. And Adam's discipline is because he listened to the voice of his wife. That's not a blanket statement saying that a man should never listen to his wife's voice. He'd be a fool if he didn't do that. Instead, he's listening to his wife lead him into sin. And that's why he is, he is uh, cursed, disciplined by God. So Adam's disciplines because he listened to the voice of his wife, so as to disobey God in 3.17, and this inverts the implied order in 2.16. So back in Genesis 2, God makes Adam, God speaks to Adam, and we don't see God speak again until he says, where are you? So the, the hint or implication of the text is that God speaks to Adam, and Adam is supposed to speak to Eve, God's word, and together they obey. But here we have now Eve leading Adam in Satan's word. It's an inversion of the created order. The implication is that part of Adam's working and keeping the Garden of Eden, according to God's word, would have included defeating Satan by obeying God's word and preventing Isha, his wife, from succumbing to temptation, Satan should have been the first death and only death in the Bible. I think that's the implication of the text. Adam should have killed Satan. It was his prerogative, duty, and right, and he didn't. I think it's an implication of the text. After the fall, humanity is divided into two seeds. Either seed of Satan or offspring of Satan or seed of Isha, the woman, who will be, and they will be in unceasing conflict. And in fact, you can, if you've ever wondered, just, just a side note, why genealogies are so important in the Bible. You, we tend to gloss over those. The names are hard to pronounce. We have no idea what it means. And they, frankly, they're boring. But why are genealogies all throughout the book of Genesis and the Bible? Why is barrenness of a godly woman such a big deal? And why is the birth of sons such a source of conflict? Right? Cain kills Abel. Evil Pharaoh destroys the baby boys of Israel, as does Herod when Jesus is born. The plot conflict of the Bible is around the gospel. And the coming Savior, the second Adam, who will fix all that the first Adam broke. So there's this dueling seeds. And so it turns out even though Adam and Eve have Cain, 
even though he's biologically descended from Eve, Cain proves to be a spiritual offspring of Satan, a spiritual seed of Satan. That'll become important later. But here we get into the discipline of man and woman. So the woman, she's going to have pain in childbearing. Her discipline directly affects and frustrates her unique contribution to the creation commission. Fruitful, multiply, and fill. She is the one who will bear the child. And so her pain in the discipline of the Lord is directly impacting her part of the creation commission. She gets pain in childbearing. But then we're going to see there's pain for Adam, and the pain is directly uh, associated with his role in the creation commission. Thorns and thistles, hard ground, difficult labor, you're dying. So notice that the, both the discipline is associated with Genesis 1 and the creation commission, dominion and childbearing. But in the middle of Gen- in Genesis 3.16, we're get, we get the basic description of the war between the sexes, the difficulty of marriage and more. So there's pain in marriage. Now, the text doesn't use the word pain in marriage. It's pain in childbearing and pain in uh, Adam working the ground. But the implication is there's going to be pain in marriage for both the man and the woman. So you can either look at the notes I have there in your Bible. So this is going to be, um, this is on page 45, verse 16, right in the middle of the page. You can see it. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing In pain you shall bring forth children. And then here it is. This line right here is the pain in marriage. Your desire, Eve, shall be contrary to your husband. But he, Adam, will rule over you, Eve. What does this mean? This is is premarital counseling. This is marital counseling right now. To Eshaw in 316b, again, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Uh, my older 2011 ESV just simply says your desire shall be for your husband. So it's kind of ambiguous what that means. And then the update here that I have in your notes, they clarify by saying contrary to your husband. And then we see that he, Adam, will rule over you. So let's try to make sense of what these terms mean. Well, it's actually right in the next line on page 47. Cain is despising Abel. The Lord comes to Cain and gives grace by warning Cain of his impending sin. And listen to this description that God says in 4-7. It's right here in the middle of, of page 47. To Cain, God says, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Do you see that it is the exact same statement in 4.7 as it is in 3.16? But in 3.16, it's Eve and Adam, 
And here it's sin and Cain. So sin's crouching at the door. It's personified as a beast, like a, like a tiger or something. And sin is against Cain. Its desire is contrary to him. And Cain must rule over it. That is, he must defeat, or you could say put to death, or something along those lines, the sin. So the correspondence here is some have, I've had conversations with friends, with uh, one of my buddy's wives. She was reading this and she thought, oh, your desire shall be for your husband. That means that sex is a result of the fall and sexual desire. Or uh, she took a little bit more positively, and there, there, is, an impl- there is a possibility here, but um, she took your desire sh- f- shall be for your husband as meaning that a wife will be prone to idolize her husband or desire for a husband or desire for the boyfriend that leads to a husband and that she will turn him into a, an idol. Maybe. But here in this updated ESV, they make it pretty clear. This is the battle of the sexes. This is the inversion Basically, what we see in Genesis 3, where Eve usurped her role and was not submitted to Adam. Adam did not exercise his role to lovingly care for and lead his wife and kill Satan. There's this role frustration. In short, here's your notes. The pain of marriage is an amplification of the inverse of the created order like it was in the fall. The woman will be prone to not being in the position of helper to her husband, but a role reversal. Desire in this context parallels the idea of rule and speaks of an anti-helper, impulse against the husband. There is, I don't have it in your notes, there is one other passage where this exact same phrase is used about desire is for... um, And it's used in the Song of Solomon on the wedding night in a positive sense of the groom approaching his bride to consummate the marriage. So there's a positive sense in Song of Solomon, but here in 316b and 4.7, this is God's discipline on Adam and Eve. So, but just ladies note this, husbands note this. And I'm going to argue that even in Christ, Christ redeems us and he's beginning to, he's, he's restoring the roles that we have in marriage, we'll get to that later, but each of us, a man and a woman, is going to have an um, unthoughtful drift towards falling into this disciplined reality of being a man and a woman. The husband has his problems. Now here in 3.16, he's going to be prone to not exercising godly authority, but ruling that he is going to have a propensity to be harsh, he's going to have a propensity of being domineering, and he's going to have a propensity of being selfish. Adam's authority and rule over his wife was to give his life for her and serve her. Now he will be prone to self-seeking, as will she. She will seek to be the anti-helper who will usurp the role, and she will want to be in charge. She will want to control, and the husband's authority will now be misused to being a jerk. And every single one of us in this room has this remaining sin in us, 
and must fight against it all the time, especially for those of you who are married. I do see another implicit sin of Adam here, that the husband will also be prone to passivity, as Adam was when he let and followed Esha into the fall. So sometimes we want to think about, like, when did the fall happen? Was it when they uh, opened the pomegranate and ate it? I think it was a pomegranate. When they bit the apple, is that when that happened? Or was it when Eve's temptation gave in? I, I think the whole episode of Genesis 3 is the fall. So when Adam is sitting there not destroying Satan and listening to the um, anti Christ word of Satan come to Eve, and he should have killed her, he didn't. He was being passive. He was not filling the role that he should have, and he did not stand firm in the word and, um, and stop. He didn't hit the, the, the fruit out of Satan's hand or his wife's hand, which he should have. He didn't use the word of God to duel Satan. In fact, the only one who spoke most of the word of God to Satan was Eve. She, she kind of gave some attempt. So what I see then for a man is that there's a, the road and there's two ditches on either side that we are constantly, um, our, our wheels are out of alignment and we're going from ruling like a jerk to passivity. And it takes a lot of concerted effort for a guy to keep both hands on the wheel and drive straight down the road. But in Christ, we're forgiven of those sins and by the Holy Spirit and the word of God, we are armed with the grace of knowing this and then can love each other well, especially in our marriages, to both be patient when the other spouse is um, trafficking in their unique uh, gender-specific sin, as well as helping each other out of those sins. So both of us, the man and the woman, um, should not be surprised when we need to repent to our beloved because of how we misuse the roles that we have. But in Christ, we're redeemed and being restored. And so part of sanctification is that we can actually have Ephesians 5 marriages where the husband does love his wife as Christ loved the church and the wife does submit to and respect her husband in life-giving ways. So the roles and relationship of marriage, top of page 48, are now hardwired because of sin and the curse to be characterized by conflict and tendencies to role inversion. Wives controlling, wives dominating, and wives rejecting the leadership of the husband, husbands wavering in passivity, or dominance. Now, due to restraining grace, marriage is not as bad as it can possibly be. People still desire marriage, but at its root, there will be an instinctual drift toward role misuse, abuse, and, and reversal. Being a new creation in Christ, empowered by the Spirit, and conformed to the Word, restores marriage to its pre-fall created order, yet remaining sin and effects of the fall, uh, they remain. So even so, Christian marriage can truly be a living portrait of the gospel, as I said. Uh, I, I want to pause there uh, and ask if there's any questions on what the Word of God is teaching and how it's making clear from that text comparison so we can understand ourselves rightly in marriage, and this is going to impact then when we get into the world's notion of what marriage is later, when we get into the notion of the world's marriage of roles and why they reject it and hate it. This is going to get into even so-called evangelical feminists 
that deny the, the idea of roles in home and in church and more. Any questions on that? Or any comments from Bo? Okay. Anita has a question. I'm, I'm just curious about... Um, so, you said the implication for the man was passivity. Is the implication for the woman easily deceived as well? Like, would... I've heard that opinion before. I'm curious what you think. Um, Paul uses that in 1 Timothy 2. He, when, when Paul, it's in your notes, uh, when Paul prohibits a woman from teaching or exercising authority over a man in 1 Timothy 2, 12, he then grounds that reasoning in the created order before the fall, and the fact that Eve was deceived. Does that mean that women are necessarily more gullible or, or deceived? I'm not confident that that's an, the right interpretation of the text. I, I don't think so. There's the... We get into the realm of speculation. So I, I don't want to do that. Very good question. Sorry, I don't have a good answer for you. Yes, Hannah. I'm just curious with this view. I mean, I, I, I understand where you're coming from, and I agree with all that. But with, with the women submitting to her husband, like, how does that all fit in also with, like, Proverbs 31 women? Like, because that's not just a passive woman that's sitting around doing nothing. She's actively out there working. So how does that combine um, with this perspective of what the role of the woman is? We'll get there, but I need to address it now because you, you've asked a really good question. So um, right, one of the additional cuss words in society is submit, right? And so uh, we, especially you young ladies, but we all have been trained to think that submission necessarily means inferiority, incompetence, um, uh, second-class citizen, um, junior varsity, what other, all the negative adjectives that we can, we, can, we can give to it, and that is all evil and satanic. Um, the Proverbs 31 woman is the pinnacle description of a submissive woman. Intelligent, hardworking, uh, initiative—it's—it's uh, it's, um, the the. We'll get more. So I don't want to. I don't want to show my cards all up front, but I'll just address it now. Just saying that when you hear the word submission, that's when the hair stands up on the back of the neck, and bristle and hands tighten, and that's because we have been trained by an ungodly world and an ungodly interpretation that it's bad. And it's actually in the Bible, it's only life-giving. And the picture is a submissive wife, the wife beater wearing, beer stained, uh, beer swigging husband. Don't marry a guy like that. And, but the, the portrait that's out there is, is just the, the caricatures are, are false. So I just wanted to say up front, 
that a woman's submissiveness, as exemplified by the Proverbs 31 woman, who, by the way, in the order that Jesus read his Bible, the next book after Proverbs 31 is the book of Ruth. And the only person in the whole Bible called a worthy woman is Ruth. And the only man ever called a worthy man in the Bible in the masculine form is Boaz. So Ruth and Boaz are the portrait of a Proverbs 31 on display. And the Proverbs 31 woman is married to a man who is an elder in the gates. So uh, that's, the, that's an Old Testament forward-looking type to the prototype of Christ in the church and what the church looks like to submitting to her Lord. So we'll get there, but it's bound up in the gospel. Good question. Uh, let's keep moving. Uh, page 48, so the discipline of the man, he has pain in his work. Again, thinking about the man is affected and uniquely disciplined in his unique role in the creation commission of rule, exercise, dominion, and subdue. So the woman was fruitful and multiply. The man is dominion and subdual, and subdue. And then they're both, within marriage, there will be a tendency to conflict. Note the assumptions and implications of the curse. Eve is primarily affected in the home. Why? Because bearing and caring for children assigns to Isha a homeward priority. Adam is primarily affected in the field. Why? Because his creation commission of subduing and dominion assigns him an outward priority. Keyword is priority. Adam's going to go home and he's going to participate and, and manage home life. And depending upon... Uh, the number of kids and season of kids, she's going to be in the field helping him. So I say priority. Both are equally affected in their marriage. So summary observations. While Adam and Eve each equally bear the image and likeness of God, the zoomed-in creation account of Genesis 2 reveals that man and woman each bear gifted and honorable positions relative to one another. The positions, the roles that God gives do not elevate or truncate, right, cut off, make small, the image in either the man or the woman. A role of authority and headship is implicitly given to the man before the fall, but that doesn't mean that she's any less the image of God or is somehow intellectually inferior or incompetent or anything like that. Adam and Eve and the Creation Commission a thought experiment. Don't look in your notes. This is, inter this is interaction time. Uh, let's, let's pretend Adam and Eve did not fall. Adam crushes Satan's head and Satan's dead. They still have the creation commission. Fruitful, multiply, fill, and subdue the earth. Dominion, rule. So this thought experiment is, let's piece together, just maybe two or three of you, what would it look like then as they begin to be faithful to God's command? What are some maybe pointed statements you can make of what would happen? What are the implications of them obeying God? Hold on a second, Richard. I think they would be in a position to continue glorifying God, having dominion over the, the animals in the world. But, uh, 
what does that actually look like? What does it look like on day 100, 200, 1,000? They'll be in God's presence, enjoying God. Okay. They'll be right there speaking and being in his, in his presence. So they would be um, truly the image and likeness of God because they would be living a life with God the way he planned it. That's e excellent overall picture. What does it look like them to obey the creation commission? They would have kids, they would be growing crops, they would be making things, and as their kids grow up and have more kids, they're spreading across the whole world and continuing to do all of that. So, um, Diane, I'm just, you have the microphone. I'm going to put you on the spot. So, Eve um, is on Kid 37. Okay. So, l let's assume there's no twins or triplets. Uh, and they're probably like on an 18-month to two-year kid pattern or whatever it is. Um, so I don't know how many kids that would be in the home at once necessarily, but there's 10, 10, 12 kids at home. What does life look like for Eve, do you think? That sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what Except I Except she's perfect. <laughs> She doesn't have any pain in childbearing, and her kids don't have sin. Can you imagine it? I cannot. <laughs> there is no death. There's no death. But, but so practically speaking, what, I, what I'm driving at, what I'm, I'm pressing you to think through is, where would Eve primarily be, and what would she primarily be doing? Where would Adam be, and what would he be primarily doing in obedience to God? She would be primarily in the home. Yeah. And he would be primarily in the field. Yeah. As a team, both obeying, it takes both of them together to obey the Great Commission. He, he can't do it on his own. She can't do it on her own, certainly with the children. But then as the kids get older, most likely the sons will be out in the field being discipled by dad, then moving on and expanding the borders of the Garden of Eden. I, we don't want to digress into how marriage would work and all that stuff. But that would happen, and then Eve would be managing her home and having a, a society of, of these children as well as young women who she is discipling, and they're training their children in the fear and instruction of the Lord and more, and we have Adam's commission to fill the earth, which means not only expand the Garden of Eden, but fill it with, with people. And so thanks, thought experiment over. But I, I want you to, to, to think about that. And if, if we were to keep reading in Genesis 4 or 5, even after the flood with the rise of nations, we see that even in a fallen world, they're inventing things. They're inventing music. And art, even as fallen human beings, the residual image of God in them has them doing what God does, create. Adam and his brilliance would have had to figure out irrigation systems. He would have figured out how to properly fall a tree with multiple limbs so that it falls in the right place, how to buck up the logs, and more. And Eve would probably begin to be in her brilliance, start thinking through, okay, how can I improve making, well, would they wear clothes? I, 
however that would work. But, but even the creativity of different dishes and spices. And, and so the ingenuity, the brilliance and more, we see that taking place. I mean, we're here in a fallen world and look at what's all around us. We call that God's common grace. So how much more if they had not fallen? But the point is, as we begin to think about the idea of the creation commission and the role of Adam and Eve and their partnership, I hate, I really do hate that the word partnership has been co-opted by LGBTQ+, and now it's just the normal word to describe, because it means that you're not married, you're just co-fornicating. And so, uh, but it's such a good word to actually describe that we, there's a partnership, but I don't like using it because it got stolen. But there would have been a partnership. And, and so the point is, that, not, that has not been lifted. The creation commission has not changed. Now, it's been expanded through the great commission, through Jesus. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with disciples of Jesus. But it didn't replace the creation commission. It still exists. We just now have two commissions. And that's going to be important, then, as you start to think about what it means to be a Christian man and a Christian woman in a Christian marriage and what obligations God puts, us, puts on us in his word to be faithful both to the creation commission and great commission. That's kind of where we're going. Any, any questions um, before we move into what is a man and what is a woman? On the thought experiment or more? Okay, let's jump in. Page, your new page 50. So it was really interesting working on writing this. Initially, I had this written, and my, the plan was to talk about what is a man and what is a man for first, then circle back and what is a woman and what is she for second. But the more I was in the Word and studying the Word and thinking through at a high level What you say of a man, in many ways, is correspondingly true in a complementary fashion for a woman. And you'll see that come out. So, for example, both Adam and Eve have the creation commission, but they each have different um, labor job descriptions to make it happen together, if that makes sense. So at the top of the page of New 50, what is a man, what is he for? We're also thinking about what is a woman, what is she for? It's critical to recognize there's a corresponding and complementary feminine counterpart to each of the following descriptions of what a man is. We should not be surprised by this due to God's complementary design of men and women for the sake of the Great Commission. As such, the term principle will be used to describe what a man is for. The term principle means first in order, or highest authority, or leader, it can also mean representative. The term captures the notion of headship that God assigns to men in various areas of life for the sake of the Great Commission. So, when you hear me use the word principle, when you see it there in your notes, I am trying to emphasize the priority and the initiation responsibility the man bears 
in this area, and yet there's a feminine counterpart to it in womanly ways for the woman. Does that make sense? Hopefully it makes sense as we go. So number one, there's, there's kind of a logical order to these, and since I preach, these are all P's. So first, he's the principal praiser. <laughs> a man, first and foremost, is repentant and gladly submitted to the gospel of King Jesus. A man is not his own island. He is not the king of his own house. Jesus is the king of his house because Jesus is the king of him. Every aspect of a man's life is dedicated to glorifying God. He seeks to bring others into prayerful worship of God. He seeks to put on the image of Christ, the true man. So Paul tells, says to Timothy, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. And I just add, there's no question in the Bible. It's everywhere that a woman likewise is a praiser of the Lord. But when you, when you zoom in um, and look at the household around dinner time, and if there's kids around the table, it should be the dad who takes the initiative to lead his family in worship. Uh, if, if the couple is in bed um, and they're preparing to go to sleep, the man should initiate praying with and or for his wife before they go to bed, or perhaps when they get up in the morning. Or it, so it's the initiatory responsibility leadership a man has in no way diminishing that a woman could say to her husband, hey, let's pray. Praise the Lord for that. A woman should be sharing scripture with her husband. Praise the Lord for that. But this is that he is the principal praiser. That's what a man is, and that's what a man's for. So a man who does not do that is in rebellion to God and rejection of God's ways. It'll look different so just for a second, if you start going, oh, no, I don't lead my uh, family with little kids every single night in family devotions, They're not talking about that. We can go into more details on that, but it's the heart attitude and leadership component. Number two, the man is the principal reproducer, and that's twofold, uh, make, multiply, and mature babies. The fulfillment of the Great Commission to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Obviously, this requires the willing participation of a wife. The emphasis here, though, for the guys, is that him being the principal reproducer means that this guy has taken responsibility for himself in Christ to mature to the point of being marriable. And then pursuing and then providing for his Christian wife, leading to, by God's grace, children, generally speaking. So that's why in Ephesians 6, 4, it doesn't say fathers and mothers, or it doesn't sing out the mothers. Paul singles out fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, uh, which in many ways means being not just... Um, um, being inconsistent in your fathering of them and inconsistent in your discipline of them, but also being too harsh with them and setting standards that are unachievable and more, many different ways that we can provoke our children to anger. 
but it says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we can go to other texts. Um, Actually, they'll show up in a moment. All men must engage, rather, excuse me, all men must manage their households well, especially those who are qualified for the office of elder and deacon, 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. The emphasis on household management is not only conducting the affairs of the house, food, finances, shelter, health, welfare, education, but the accent falls on raising faithful, obedient children in the Lord. It's the accent on Scripture falls on the man doing that and his responsibility for it. At the same time, faithful household management is not only an expectation of mothers, but the qualification for widows to be supported by the church. So sometimes you see men have to manage their households, and so a guy thinks that he needs to rule and domineer every detail of the affairs of his house, even though his wife is way better at managing finances than he is. And then there's this false notion that somehow her managing the finances means that he's abdicating his responsibility. No, it's not. That's wise management. Use your skill sets and gifting to have the husband and wife uh, flourish in their areas of responsibility given by the Lord or how the Lord has gifted you. So wives also are supposed to manage their households. If a woman does not manage her household well and she becomes a widow, she's not permitted to be brought on the church's roles of support because she was a poor manager of her household. Interesting thought, 1 Timothy 5. The second part of being a principal reproducer is not just making babies, it's making disciples of Christ, especially men raising men. So 2 Timothy 2.2, this is spoken to pastor elders, but by implication, it can be to all men. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I should have moved 1 Timothy 3 on elders and deacons up one. Titus 2, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Teach what is good. Train the young women to love their husbands and children. Be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be reviled. We'll get into that more. Principal producer. A man works to exercise dominion, cultivating one's area of vocation to flourishing for the sake of the gospel. Whatever a man's area of work is, he should seek the blessing and benefit of his home, his church, and the society at large. Vocation is an old word, that effectively conveys the idea that a man's God-given skill sets, his aptitudes, his interests, are God's quote-unquote calling. That's the, the vo part of cation, is the voice. Um, God's calling on the man's life to do his part in ruling, subduing, and exercising dominion for the blessing and benefit of others and to advance the kingdom of Christ. 
So a man's a principal producer. Key point here on work. Guys, when guys first meet and start talking, what's the first or second question we always ask each other? What do you do? What do you do for a living? What do you do? And the thing is, in our world, uh, identity and worth come from what you do for work. It becomes your identity and your worth from a worldly perspective. What's important to recognize for the Christian man who's fervent in his work is that our identity and worth don't come from our work. They come from our union with Christ. When Mandy pointed out earlier, or maybe it was Katie, the message to women in our world since the rise of first wave feminism and second wave feminism and now being in third wave feminism is that a woman's identity and worth comes from her work. Her meaning, dignity, and value and worth is to do what a man does on equal pay scale in the world and then she is a true upstanding member of society. Rather than a woman's identity coming from union with Christ. We'll get into that more in a moment, but I just want to point that out. And while a man's vocation normally locates his work outside the home, he nonetheless is homeward in his priorities and responsibilities. Bo, what is, guess what Dave's thinking? What is, so this statement that a, a, a man's work takes him outside the home as do his hobbies, but he should be homeward in his priorities. What's a fault that men have with their work and their hobbies relative to their home life? Or some faults they might have? They spend too much time in them. Do you want to say anything else? That's good. Right, so his man cave is the garage, away from the kids and the wife, hustle and bustle, gets away, goes and tinkers, gets home, and whatever, he, whatever his deal is. Uh, and guys have deals, but it becomes idols. And so there's a way that we men can, because of remaining sin in our lives, even for Christian men, that even though we are home, we're not home, we're in a different place of the home, just doing our hobby or preparing for our hobby or preparing for work. So I want you to know, though, that a man's vocation locates him outside the home normally, but he nonetheless is homeward in his priorities and responsibilities, and while a woman's vocation normally locates and prioritizes her managing her home, controversial statement from the world's perspective, her partnership with her husband as helper will also do with an eye to aid him in his vocation. There is, there is help built in there. One of the lies, here it is, one of the lies of feminism is that for a woman to have value, dignity, and worth and independence... She must work as a man does. Do what guys do outside the home. Here's the hidden message of the lie. She will find her identity and meaning in doing what God assigned Adam to do, not Eve. That's the message of feminism in all its iterations. Ladies, being like Eve is unfulfilling. Don't do what Eve did. You need to be like Adam. Pause. Do you remember the problem that Adam and Eve would face in their marriage and what her desire was 
and what his desire was? I think there's an amplification of that in feminism and its variety of forms of doing what Adam did. Because if Satan can convince women, right, the lie of feminism inverts and disparages the God-given gift to women of homemaking. Proverbs 31, we're going to get to her. Because even when you hear homemaking, the pictures that society has given you is that somehow, since the world thinks that men can have babies, which they cannot, that devalues and degrades women. And for women to be convinced, and again, all things being equal, we've spoken about infertility. We've, there's times, there's seasons when you don't have kids, when you're early married, you might be empty nester. I'm speaking in general terms here of the normal pattern of life where most people normally have kids in the home. And the lie is that a woman can only find value in doing what God called Adam to do. And it's a lie. This is not to say women cannot work, can never work outside the home, be industrious, have side hustles, or the like. There are a number of biblical examples of hard-working, brilliant women. Proverbs 31 woman. We'll get to her later. She was busy. And usually she is a crushing example for many ladies of how industrious she was. We'll get there. You have Priscilla married to Aquila. And they, uh, there's kind of an implication in the text they didn't have kids. They fled persecution in Rome. They were by trade tent makers. Maybe they had kids. We don't know. But the amount of traveling they did, they end up getting hooked up with Paul, church planting trips. Then they eventually had, had a church in their home that, that he led and she uh, exercised hospitality for. There's, there's Priscilla. Lydia was rich. She was a super wealthy woman, and God used her generosity once she got saved to fund must, uh, much gospel church planting, etc. There's more examples that we can multiply of women who worked hard. So the idea, Hannah, went earlier about submission or not working or even hearing homemaking, what I'm trying to say is that there's a priority, there's a compass in the heart that places men and women in the home together. But the Adam, the guy, will normally be outside the home, killing the food, building the building, doing what's necessary, and bringing it home. And she's going to be... That's why we did that thought experiment in the beginning, thinking about the implications of being obedient to the Great Commission. Further, this is just the still in page 52, seasons of life, no kids, empty nest, infertility, will allow for different circumstances for a woman's work. So it's not wrong given a season or stage or station of life. But the biblical principle is that the man will be the principal producer and principal provider outside and for the home, whereas the, the mother will be the principal producer and provider in the home. God did not assign Adam to do only what Eve can do. He can't. It would be an error to say a man can have no domestic qualities and responsibilities. He can and does. Just as it is wrong to say a woman can have no vocational responsibilities outside the home. She can. But it is to say God has designed men and women for the task with suited skills to carry out their creation commission. And the world denies it, the world hates it, and the world wants to erase it. 
Work is not a result of the curse, but it's frustrated by the curse. God's gifted vocation for your life and society and church will not contradict his word. So if your desires or the use of your skill sets are contradictory to his word, don't follow your heart. One more thing on, on thinking about work. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 12. Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to note gender, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. And here's the command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. But now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. This is an example of biblical social justice. What's fair and equitable in this point is that if a guy won't work, the guy won't eat. That's the opposite of our big government perspective of giving handouts and more. So all things being equal, right? So I don't want to qualify everything to death. All things being equal, a man is expected to work not only to provide for his household, but to also be generous with others. Ephesians 4.28 a man who is fed from the work of others when he can otherwise work perpetuates his laziness and idleness according to the Bible, which goes against God's word and plan for how the world should work. That is, with men working. And he's talking to Christians. Right? So this is in the church. Guys getting handouts and going getting food from other people. The key here is the term willing to work. There are certainly times when distress or sickness or injury or job loss renders a willing man jobless. And in those cases, it is absolutely appropriate, godly, good, gracious for us to rally around and care for his family in distress, help pay the bills, do those things, praise Jesus. That's why we have an SOS fund in the church. The key thing here, though, is we're thinking about what is a man and what is a man for, what is a woman and what is a woman for. We see that God has designed in the Great Commission that a woman typically, normally, has the homeward orientation because she will have children underfoot, and the man will typically be oriented outside the home working. And where the income comes from in Scripture is always associated with the man. Now, the Proverbs 31 woman, Proverbs 31 woman she's raking in the cash. She's buying and selling fields. She's a real estate agent. She's got a sharp eye, and she's uh, uh, shipping goods different places. So we'll get there. 
But what we see is there's an accent that falls on the man to work. Related to this principal uh, producer, what's the next one? Principal provider. So 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for what gender, does that say? Yeah. Just in case you missed it, I italicized it, underlined it, and bolded it. If anyone, is that a man or a woman, does not provide for his, okay, he's talking about guys. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's gentle scripture for you. While the wise woman of Proverbs 31, I have had to hold back so many sarcastic remarks right there. <laughs> that silence was self-control. While the wise woman of Proverbs 31 buys and sells fields, sews clothes while managing her home, Scripture never depicts or commands a woman as being the primary and responsible provider for the home. It is always the man. It is always the man. And so we as a church must teach our young men and train our young men and our old men and every man in between to expect that. Um, I just have to do a quick digression because this is a spoiler alert for what we'll get to when we talk about society, Lord willing, in the spring. With the rise of industrial culture, people move off the farms and into the cities. Your house gets smaller. Kids are no longer a workforce. They take up resources. And in order to survive in an industrial age, in a technocratic age that we are in, and to be in the city, it is uh, far more expensive to raise children and have a home to accommodate them and to feed them and clothe them and all of those things. So we live in a world, especially in the West, that incentivizes not having kids and even requires a woman to work outside the home so that they can afford the crazy, insane, 800-square-foot, million-dollar place one block right here. It was like $700,000 for a 600-square-foot room or something. It's stupid. But that's the society that we live in where it's, it's actually financially bound that it's really, really hard for a family to get by if there's only one source of income, especially in this town. And we as Christians need to think carefully about how we order our lives given that reality and recognize that um, the world has stacked the deck against the Great Commission, especially being fruitful and multiplying. But anyways, the guy is a principal provider for wife and kids, for the church. This is an implication. Galatians 6, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are a household of faith. So unbelievers and believers, especially believers, this is equally true for men and women, but here's an implication I want to draw from this. Provision can take many forms. It's food, it's clothing, it's help, it's supplies, resources, uh, rent, borrow a car, gas, whatever. Where do the resources come from 
for one household to provide for another household and being generous. Typically from the man who is working and then bringing home the funds. But recognizing that there's dual income, it comes from both. But thinking through the creation commission and the way it's, it's applied, that's an implication of this. And similar for your neighbors. We're supposed to be generous with, with outsiders. And principal protector. Of biblical truth. 1 Timothy 6. Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble, contradictions of what's falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Now, he's a pastor. Timothy is. Timothy's supposed to lead his fellow elders in this church plant to understand these truths. We saw earlier that he's supposed to entrust the gospel to other faithful men and more. Galatians 1 tells us that the whole church, men and women, are held accountable for doctrinal error. Yet given the male leadership of the church, the accent falls on the men. See, for example, Paul's statement about a woman asking her husband questions in 1 Corinthians 4.15. There is a priority. So again, remember the word principle. Men and women both guard, the doct- guard doctrine, but there's a priority to the man. That means that the guy needs to know the Bible. So... Whatever your deal is, if it's hunting, if it's sports, if it's whatever you are brilliant at, you need to apply similar labor to understanding Bible and theology so that you're competent in leading your family and your household in those. And part of the reason men's ministry exists is to help each other become competent in our knowledge of Christ and the gospel and the same for women's ministry. So, yes... Men have a primary responsibility of protecting biblical truth, but who did Timothy learn the gospel from? His mom and his grandmom. They they are the ones who evangelized him, not Timothy's dad. Of the well-being of others, this is being a protector. Ephesians 6, 4 follows, again, we looked at this, don't provoke your kids. This would include discipling children to navigate the way in a fallen world, spot the lies and seductions of the evil one, tear down false ideologies, put on spiritual armor of Christ, and more. We are training our children to both repent and follow Jesus and live faithfully for Jesus in the world. But so long as evil exists, and as far as the curse is found, evil men and a fallen world, such as disasters, will hurt and harm others. A man will use his strength to stop evil, even giving his life so others may keep theirs. In the Old Testament, men obediently warred against evil, attacking, attacking nations. So if a nation was attacking them, they defended themselves. In the New Testament, there's no indication that soldiers who were converted to Jesus stopped soldiering. For example, Cornelius. Christians... Employed by the state, police officers, the magistrate, bear the sword in obedience to and the glory of God. So the, the, the anecdote is true. I mean, what do you think of a household where you hear the front door, you hear the window break? And so the husband says to his wife, go see what that sound is. <laughs> I, I think even non-Christians, I think even the the couple cohabitating, co-fornicating, living together, she's still going to go tell him, 
to go. Why? He's probably bigger. And he should die instead of her anyways. <laughs> so if there's a noise in the house, the husband gets up. He goes and inspects it. He deals with it, not the wife. The man who stays in bed while his wife goes to confront the intruder. Oh, I didn't finish the sentence. Well, how do you want to finish that sentence? <laughs> but, ladies, sometimes there's going to be times, Lord willing not, when a woman may be called upon to drive a stake through a bad guy's head, pinning his dead body to the ground. Amen. <laughs> you guys know that story? JL and Sisera, bad guy Sisera goes into her tent. Come here, my Lord, have some milk. She gives him a glass of milk. He falls asleep. Boom, she is hardcore. But woven into biblical masculinity and biblical femininity and even just men and women who are unconverted, there is still the primary that it's men who have fought wars, hopefully against, for good reasons, against evil. That's a different conversation. And it's a different ethical conversation for a woman to sit in Nevada in a bunker and fly a drone across the world. Um, but... It's something to think about that God intends the man to be the principal protector of word and people. Principal planner. Means that, guys, you need to have a plan. You really do. Okay, and then a principal partnership. The idea here is that for fellowship in the gospel, a man should be leading his family to church. A man should be, if his wife is still in bed and the kids are still in bed, you get up early and you wake your kids up and you wake your wife up and you bring them to church because our family worships Jesus. Our family makes church the centerpiece of our, of our life. And yet, so does the wife. So again, we're talking about priorities. Uh, church life, you can skim through that, and neighborly civil life. I want to just... Uh, move through these. These, if you go through again, I would suggest you go through and look at these because I have been talking so much. I do want to take a few questions before we're done in four minutes. As I wanted to do in one sitting there, derive both what we see in the fall as well as a summary of what Scripture paints of what's expected of both a man principally and then a woman also. And what we could go back through with each one of these things and say, what does the world say about a man being the principal protector or provider or planner or a man taking initiative on any of those things? We've already mentioned earlier how the world views those really as, well, chivalry is dead, right? And so any attempt to open the door or to be a protector or to think of any type of role in our egalitarian culture, is necessarily misogynistic from our world, world's perspective. And women have been lied to to believe that lie. So um, let's just open up with any thoughts, comments, questions, or anything. Tonight was a lot, but I want to move us through this. Yeah, Anita. I just want to ask you to kind of 
maybe go into an example, some, some scenarios like disability, a man who is disabled, but he's married to an able woman. Um, all of this sounds very condemning to someone like that, but I know it just, I know that that's, that, that he still is the principal and all of those things that you listed. Can you just talk about what that scenario would look like or maybe some others? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's why I said, I don't want to qualify this to death and outliers don't create the norms. So a man who's disabled in God's bitter providence and grace, that's the life that he's been given. And the key word that I emphasize in the text was willing. And so, um, so he'll do what he can, given what he's able to do. It's just a matter, is a guy just like, nah, I'm going to be a leech? Or does he want to serve the Lord however he can, however the Lord has gifted him and suited him, given his context? So uh, Priscilla and Aquila, if we presume they weren't able to have kids, maybe their kids passed away. We don't know. We don't have their backstory. But they, if we presume they're single, they use their singleness as a married couple to move around the Mediterranean planting churches. Praise God. And they self-supported because they had a... They, they, had a, they had a family business of tent making, which didn't root them in Rome. So they were able to move around and eventually go to Ephesus, set up shop, and they could travel around. That's a really awesome, awesome thing. So, so a guy should feel convicted if he wants his wife to get up to inspect the broken window. A guy should feel convicted if he realizes that he's a domineering jerk or overly passive. A guy should feel convicted if he uh, wants to be lazy, but if he uh, wants to fulfill what maybe an able-bodied guy would do, but he can't, praise God. And, and he needs to, um, with the help of his brothers, figure out how he can best serve Jesus with the way that Jesus has suited him. So seasons of life matter. Sickness matters. All, all, so that's where all the, I don't want to qualify everything to death. I'm talking about just the norm for m most people. That's still a really good question. What else? Ladies first. Is that okay, Ron? Um, it's, it's eight. If you need to sneak out, you're welcome to. But I, but I would like to go maybe 10 more minutes if that's okay. Um. I feel like there are some, some people who, that I've interacted with who have the attitude that because a woman's work is primarily in the home and the guy's work is the one that's providing the money and that sort of thing, that a woman's work is not as important as a man's. And so whenever there's a priority war, like between them or whatever, that the, the man's work always gets priority or whatever, like his stuff is more important um, and along with that, um, I've seen a lot of attitude of like, it's never the man's duty to help in the home. Like, it's disrespectful for the wife to ask for help with dishes, like that kind of thing, because that's woman's work. Um, and all of that kind of thing. And the man, I don't know, just, I was just wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah, number one, uh, I believe it is sin whether intentional or unintentional, for a man to, in any way to devalue the homemaking of his wife. Uh, I hope that I've presented here the biblically exalted position and partnership required for the Great Commission. And so he's basically saying, you're part of the Great Commission. 
is a, is a sub-job description from mine, and that is just simply not biblical. I would also say that we as Christians are embedded in a time and a place and a culture, and we have to work well and think biblically deep to um, think through what does the Bible say and my culture say, because all the cultural definitions of masculinity and femininity are not good. So uh, Clint Eastwood and machismo and that notion is not in keeping with what scripture teaches. So um, for a guy to have an overwhelmed wife, I'm just going to, pres- I'm going to paint my own picture here with a lot of things going on and she can't get to the dishes, um, do the dishes and turn on some fun music and bring a kid there to help you or do something to, to help out. I mean, the, the notion that there's, that there, um, I just I think that's it's it's uh, very bad theology, misplaced, not dwelling with your wife and understanding matter, not caring for her and more. The second one you said about the priority of the, of the home, that's really case specific. Is she asking him to do something that would actually ultimately hurt the house? It'll help the household in the immediate, but hurt down the road because of a lack of finances. That's a bigger wisdom issue. But um, so I, I would just that's a that would need details, but, but yeah. Um, and then a wife being a helper, part of her helping is also assisting him in the duties that he has in whatever appropriate capacity with his outside the homework. Right in front of me, Mandy, or was the... Who's next? Ron. Ron is. Yes. So uh, anthropology is the study of culture. Um, this... This book that we love was written in a culture, and uh, the world would say it records the culture norms of that culture, but it hasn't, doesn't have anything to do with our culture, which is different. And uh, to add to that, others will say that there is a, they call it a trajectory hermeneutic. Slavery in the Old Testament, some slavery in the New Testament. William Wilberforce told us, it's, told us it's bad. It is. And so there's a trajectory in Scripture where the gospel applied got rid of slavery. So the same people will say something like, we now are smarter than the Bible. And it's at a trajectory where women should be pastors. There should not be roles in the home because it is culturally conditioned. Um, I would take them to 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter says that everything that's written in the Bible is written to us, and that was not a, it's, the, the intended audience of the Bible is the church of all places, of all times, of all cultures. And so um, I, I would use that to dismiss the idea. There are a two or three difficult texts in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 11, are women supposed to wear headscarves or have long hair? There's some difficult texts that um, do require some work, but by and large, and I would, that's where I would go. Say some other stuff. Okay, my question is kind of like twofold. So the first part, I guess I've heard a lot of like, what if the man really loves cooking? Like, can he be the primary cook or loves raising kids? Like, can he be the primary, like, one in the home and the same with like, what if the woman makes a ton of money and like the man doesn't need to work, is that okay? And then also with that, 
I've heard sometimes of like, and this is like by and large, but less of this as a, um, like just for the most part of like more of a sense of posture and less of position. What would you say about that? Well, I think that's a great way of saying it. That's kind of like when I was saying the priority or homeward orientation. That's a heart posture. Motive matters. So, I mean, a good example is my amazing wife. She, we both graduated from college, uh, and she, as a 26-year-old, was wearing a hard hat in a trailer telling 55-year-old guys what to do uh, when she worked in construction management. And... Uh, she was making good money uh, doing that when, while uh, I went to school. And so she paid all the bills, she put all the food on the table, and paid for my school. And that was part of our, her being a helper. And um, when kids came along, it just it, it changed for us, and, and it was an adjustment and a sacrifice to take a very significant pay cut for, for going into ministry rather than what, what she was doing. Um, and you could have, say, an empty nester couple or, or a couple that never had children for whatever reason, and that's God's will for their life. Um, and she may make way more money than he does because of her aptitude and skill set. I'd say praise the Lord. If that became a source of conflict, then you're getting into that Genesis 3 role and all of those things um, going on. So, so again, those are, those are examples. Um, and then uh, guys should learn how to cook and make good food for their wives and then wash the dishes and then vacuum. Uh, you know, I, this is recorded. Rachel's going to hear this. There's the should and then there's a remaining sin. What else? Anything else? Is it just questions? Uh, just a second, Colt. Yeah, so, go ahead. Bill. So I was going to ask that question. I didn't know you were going to use yourself and your life experience as an example. So young, young, you uh, marry Rachel. She's making bank. You decide to go into a pauper's profession and be a pastor <laughs> and not make that bank. Um, so say, for instance, like, young couples, young kids come to, come to school, figuring it all out, and the woman's, she's a neurosurgeon or some kind of science guru or whatever, and the guy's a landscaper, and they fall in love, and they get married. And to your, to your point, um, he can stay home, he can watch the kids, he can do the dishes, he can vacuum, he can do the laundry. It just doesn't make any sense if she can provide, provide an education for their children and all that for him to stay home. But then you got the First Timothy uh, 5.8 passage, right? That if he doesn't provide for his household, then he's, to be, he's worse than an unbeliever. And so, biblically, can you kind of walk through that? I know that yours was for a season, but for those who have those questions, could you walk us through biblically how you would uh, reconstruct that passage in a situation like that? Yeah, so for example, just to, to, to personalize it, uh, there came a point where we had, uh, I think we had two kids. She was pregnant with our third. She was still working. And... I was working for the seminary. I was heading up the enrollment department, but they paid you in course credits, not groceries. And so we, we came to the decision where we, we looked at a, uh, a daycare nearby, 
And we did the math, and with her working and me working and getting the tuition credits, we had a net loss of money when we put our kids into, into daycare. And so there was actually a short season where I quit working for the seminary because that was the most financially wise option for us. Now, I was still working hard trying to get a master's degree and also serving as an elder at my church, our church, and there. And, um, but there was a season where, where she was totally bringing it in, and I wasn't working um, and bringing in money. But was that worse than an unbeliever? And that's a good question to ask in that case, like for us. Both of our hearts' desire was calibrated by the Bible. The whole reason why I was going to school and the situation existed was so that she eventually wouldn't have to work and I could work and we would make that proper decision of, of her being able. And we had uh, some older women in our lives who were at that point just empty nesters or the kids were in high school, just almost out. And so she would watch our kids and we, had, we just finagled and side hustled to get the kids taken care of. Um, so again, I think even if, to, to Bo's question, she's a neurosurgeon and he's a landscaper. Most landscapers don't make a lot of cash. Uh, is he worse than an unbeliever because he's not making more money than her? I don't think so. I don't think so because I think the implication is it's the, it's, it all gets back to the heart motive. And it might be that his, he may be the best landscaper in the world and he's serving Jesus by being a gardener, and that's his capacity. Praise the Lord. That's part of the vocation part is you should uh, pursue a vocation that is the maximal expression of your skill set for the good of society. Amen. Yeah. Thanks. For, thanks. Yeah. I just was hoping to clear up her question because I think I've actually had that question a lot. And the key, I think, would be that he's willing to provide for his family. He's doing the best that he can. And that is his provision, right? Even he's, he's just scored having being <laughs> married to someone who's making bank. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Colt had a question. Yeah, Colt. No, go ahead. You can. Oh, one more thing. I wore this t-shirt for this time of the evening, just so that you know. So, that, so that's not for me, right? That's for it's them. It's not for you. It's for this Q&A Okay, point taken. <laughs> <laughs> His shirt says, get to the point, and there's a porcupine on it. So if I could summarize a lot of what we've talked about, we might say that the different roles are separate. They're different roles, but equal in dignity before the Lord. But kind of how would we respond to somebody who says, well, separate but equal is inherently unequal? They, they're operating out of a different dictionary. So uh, to, it's the, um, the football team that, that wins the Super Bowl, each guy in that case has got a different position he plays. Some guys don't play very much. They all get a ring because they all contributed to getting to that point. I would say something similar where there's the dignity and value in the respective roles that he gives. And any notion that um, equality means sameness is not the biblical definition of, of equality. Um, I, I was just going to say about the whole thing about um, like if the wife could make more than the man. Um, I think some important caveats are that um, 
what are the what is the priority because our priorities as believers is a healthy family spiritually and physically right um not a rich family necessarily not that rich is bad but but our priority isn't the max amount of money we can make it's a healthy family and so we have to be careful not to sacrifice the mom staying home if that's what it looks like in you know for the sake of well, of course you're going to have more money if both people are working almost always, right? Um, and, um, uh, yeah, so I would just say making sure that your priority isn't necessarily money. Um, when you're making, like, just money when you're making those decisions, uh, you're looking for money to live, not to be prosperous for the sake of prosperity. Yeah, I'm going to argue when we get into family uh, next time together, Lord willing, is that... The, the biblical impulse for a family is to want to have a lot of babies. That's the exact opposite impulse of our world. Um, I'm going to argue, at least the commercials that I see on Hulu, is that um, we live in a world that loves pets more than kids. And then actually treats pets as kids with outfits, carrying them, and pushing them in strollers, and one of like the dog food commercials, they actually were talking like they were kids. And um, uh, we should love pets, but every pet should have a Christian child as an owner. So yeah, we, we need to get there. Do you, do you realize how many kids I would have to have? On that note, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.